Hey, before I begin today's message, I have a special announcement that I'm really excited to share with you. For the better part of three years, the leadership of this church has been working on planning in order to help us to be ready for the future and the ministry that God has for us in this church. We've been on this church's campus since the 1950s, and what a treasure this campus is. And after studying all the different aspects of this campus, we believe like it's time for us to allow certain aspects of our aging portion of our campus to catch up with our ministry goals and our dreams. And unanimously at the last session meeting, the session and the elders of the church approved phase one which is the beginning of what we're going to be doing in a new investment for the future of this church. This is our beloved Fellowship Hall, which has contained great events like our Christmas women's ministry celebration and tea, as well as seed packing, as well as receptions for a funeral. And we think it's a time for us to be able to transform and to be able to update this space and not only this space, but also some of the spaces that are next door. So thinking of the Noah's Ark play area that's here that's going to be relocated, as well as the St. Andrew's room that's located next to it here. We already have the resources in hand for us to do this transformation, and we're going to be beginning it quickly. We're already going to be doing it towards the end of this month. And the reason that we're moving so quickly is because this phase one portion of the enhancements to this campus are going to be able to help us with the coming stages because we're going to need a renovated fellowship hall for us to be able to complete some of the dreams that we believe that God has for us. So I want to say a special thank you to leaders who have been working on this for three years, for the congregation behind the scenes, some leaders who have stepped forward to give advanced commitment for this to take place, and for us to begin to take what is our dream of, of the 300,000 square feet plus that is in this church, it is our hope that we're going to be able to renovate half of it in the next three to four years. Can we give a thanks be to God for all of those different opportunities? So... Stay tuned because the other phases, we're going to share and talk about the dreams and pictures and ideas together, so we will kind of catch you up with that. But if you will now, turn with me in your Matthew journals or the Bible that we've provided for you to use to Matthew chapter 6. And let me remind you what we're doing. We're walking through week by week, each week, a different chapter of the book of Matthew. We're slowly and deliberately being able to see how the gospel story unfolds. And what we've noticed is that the story of Matthew is a new creation story. It tells us that God is making everything new again. And as he's doing that, we're seeing the different dimensions of our lives that he touches. That in Matthew chapter 1, that he's talking about how we have a new history. In Matthew chapter 2, how we have a new kind of family. In Matthew chapter 3, how we have a new identity. In chapter 4, we have a new sense of vocation or calling. And last week, our guest preacher, Tim, talked about how Jesus introduces the Sermon on the Mount as a very new kind of teaching. It's similar to Moses standing on the top of the mountains before the Israelites headed down into the promised land. This is Jesus ascending the mountain to be able to address the people before they enter into the promised land of the kingdom of God that is available to you and to me. 
And we learn that in Matthew chapter 5 that we are blessed and that the righteousness that God gives to us is greater than that of regular religion. And what we're about to see in Matthew chapter 6 is that God is going to give us a new kind of freedom. Now, if we were to look at the whole chapter, and we don't have time to do that, we could discover all the different facets of the freedom that Jesus invites us into with a new way of living. He says that we can have a new freedom where we don't have to, we don't have to think about what others are thinking of us, but we can make sure that we care about what God thinks of us. We could be free of resentments that we carry around with the gift of forgiveness, That you and I can be free of the possessions that try to take possession of us. That we can be free of the criticism and the judgment of the way that most of us operate with our lives. But today what I want to hone in for the next few moments as we open God's word together, I want to talk about freedom from this emotion right here. From the freedom of worry. From the freedom of anxiety. The number one greatest concern and health crisis facing America right now is anxiety. You know how when you finish a year, the the people who do all the dictionaries, they come up with new words and they come up with a word for the year? Well, HarperCollins Dictionary decided that their word for the year at the end of 2022 was this. It was the word permacrisis. It is the hybrid of permanent and crisis. In other words, there's a sense of instability and insecurity that has come from one sense of us being so globally connected and so always on top of the news. One sense of crisis after another. Personally, in the world, we feel all of that. And it feels like that as a result, that fear and worry and anxiety have become the default position and the norm. True story, I am walking alongside a family who has a teenager who has become addicted to Xanax, which is an anti-anxiety medication. And when the family found out about it and came near to their teenager, he said, I'm so sorry, but when I take Xanax, I feel like for the first time in my life, I feel normal. And I always want to feel that way. Worry and anxiety are a part of the permanent crisis that are facing us. There's a social scientist who decided to ask hundreds and hundreds of people to sit down and to keep worry journals for three weeks. And so at the end of the day, at 10 o'clock at night, they would all sit down and they would write down all of the different worries that they had that day and how much time they spent on those worries. And then what he had them do at the end of the three weeks was to go through their entire worry journal with a binary decision of did that worry actually happen or not. Did you know what he found out? 
that in the hundreds and hundreds of people that he had do this from all different sectors of society, races, genders, socioeconomic classes, that 91.4% of the stuff that we worry about never actually happens. And this is what he wrote. This is what breaks my heart about worry. It makes you miserable in the present moment to try to prevent misery in the future. For chronic worriers, this process leads them to be continually distressed all their lives in order to avoid later events that never happen. Worry sucks the joy out of the here and the now. My favorite image for what worry is doesn't come from social science, but comes from meteorology. It comes from this weather phenomenon here of fog. Did you know that if you were to take seven city blocks at 100 feet deep of fog, and you were condensing all of the moisture, seven city blocks square, 100 feet deep, and you condensed it all it would not even fill up one normal glass of water. This is my favorite controlling image for what worry is. It's real, it's pervasive, it blocks our vision and doesn't enable us to see clearly. And to be honest, there's not a lot of substance to it. And the question is, does Jesus have anything to tell us, to help us with the worries and the anxieties and the permacrisis that we find ourselves in? I believe he does. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for the Gentiles? Seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. two things that I believe that Jesus does in this text for us. I think he helps us to understand what worry is, and he helps us to understand what we can do about it. So first, let's talk about what worry is. There is a social scientist that comes from Manchester in the United Kingdom, 
And he is a social scientist that speaks a lot about fear and worry and anxiety. And he begins often his speeches, he stands up and he says this phrase. He says, I wake up every morning worrying about being trampled to death by a herd of elephants. He lives in a modern uh, kind of UK city and so this is kind of a strange thing to worry about. So then he always follows it up by saying this. I wake up every morning by worried about being trampled to death by a herd of elephants, but I haven't been trampled to death yet, so my worrying must be working. (laughs) This is the way that we address our worries. We worry about things, and most of those things don't happen, so subconsciously, implicitly, we feel like this must be a great strategy. But you know it's not, right? A more theological definition that will come as no surprise from Tim Keller to me is a better definition of worry. It is this, anxiety is the will to control the uncontrollable. Will you say this with me? Anxiety is the will to control the uncontrollable. The way that Jesus kind of portrays this is with a couple of different images. One of the images that he gives is, and by your worry, can you add one single hour to the span of your life? Another way of translating the same verse is, and by your worry, can you add one more inch to your height? These are not the things that we can do. You cannot will yourself to be taller. You cannot will yourself to be able to extend your life. There's no form of meditating on that that will make those two things come to pass, no matter how much you think about it. You're attempting to control something that you cannot control. That is exactly what a worry is. The other dimension of worry that Jesus does in helping to define worry for us is this, when he says to do not be anxious or do not worry about tomorrow. The other dimension of worry that we have a tendency to do is that what you are attempting to do in this moment is to be able to manipulate or to control something that's happening in a future moment. Do you live in that future moment or do you live in this now moment? You live in the now moment, right? And More often than not, there's nothing that you can do in this present moment to be able to control what is going to happen in the outcome of that future moment. And so we tend to be so future-oriented that we're not paying attention to what we should be doing in the here and the now. And that is how worry robs us of our life. Because it pushes us into the future in the wrong kind of way. Now, I, I understand that as I preach this message that anxiety and worry is, is a very complicated thing. Let me just share with you just the different dimensions and the layers of worry. When, when I talk about worry, I might be talking about something that's physical for you, that your adrenaline level and your stress is high and that your body is in a form of anywhere from mild to acute worry and your mind's not really involved with it, but your body is just doing that. Or maybe for you it's primarily psychological, that it's about the way that you think, that it is the way that your thoughts and the script of your mind meditates over the wrong kinds of things that you're attempting to control or manipulate. Or maybe for you, your worry or your anxiety is more philosophical in nature, that as our society is tethering itself, is removing the tethers from 
hope and life and eternity and faith and all of these great things, that as that is happening, we're experiencing deep forms of crises, of hope, a philosophical sense of angst, of why am I here? Why do I exist? Is all of this really an accident? And that's creating its own forms of worry. And even for, there are many of us that struggle with clinical anxiety. And I want you to know that I'm not trying to preach a sermon that solves every dimension of all of those different aspects of worry. I'm trying to keep the ball in the fairway here. And so give me a generous hearing on this. If you struggle with clinical worry, I am not trying to say that what I tell you today will solve every aspect of what you struggle with mentally or medically. There are other sources and resources that we can use to bring wisdom to bear on this. But I promise you this, regardless at what dimension or what level you struggle with anxiety, and I know from being your pastor, that's all of us, there is something that you can do about your worry in the light of the gospel that much of modern society ignores, and so we can't really help our worry And so Jesus not only helps us to frame what worry is, he tells us what we can do about it. And that's how I want to equip you in this moment. What can you do in the midst of your worries? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, the new freedom that we have in Christ can come, freedom from anxiety, if we do four things. If we look, if we think, if we speak, and we seek. Will you say that with me? Look, think, speak, and seek. The first thing that Jesus says is that we ought to look. The image that Jesus has us look at is he says, look at the birds of the air. This ought to be easy for us in Georgia because one of the beautiful things about living in Atlanta in an urban forest is that we have amazing birds that are around us. The reason that Jesus has us look at the birds of the air is that birds are a great example of doing work because when Jesus is saying, you know, do not worry about your life, (coughs) he is not saying the opposite of that is that you don't have to work. It's okay to work. It's okay to give effort. We're to do these kinds of things. But notice how birds go about doing their job and yet they don't seem to carry the anxiety of their work with them. You can observe different aspects of nature, particularly the animal kingdom, and you will see them do the work and the life that they're called to live, and yet we're more valuable than they. We're created in the very image of God, and yet all around us uh, from kind of animals are all these little glimpses of we don't have to live carrying the burdens that we do. Can you look around you in the world and see that? You're probably not going to see that by looking at your neighbors or your coworkers, but you can look at the birds of the air. The second thing that Jesus says that you can do about worry, uh, worry is you can think. So you not only look at the birds of the air, the second thing he says, and he uses a different word for this, to, to see by considering. He said, consider the lilies or the flowers of the field, how they grow. This is an image of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus would have delivered this message. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee and many of the flowers that grow in March during that season. 
And so Jesus was likely not just pointing to the birds that were around him, but also to the flowers that would have been around him at this. And he said, consider the flowers of the field, how they grow. They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you, Solomon in all of his glory, all of his splendor was not clothed like one of these. The other thing that we ought to consider is that God not only provides for our necessities so we don't have to be obsessed with our work and our own efforts. The other thing that Jesus is saying is not only do you put your work into a frame of gospel reference, you also ought to think, to consider, to meditate, to ponder, to wonder on the fact that God has made this world beautiful. In other words, if God was just saying that I'll provide for your necessities, but for not just for beauty as well, he wouldn't have used the example of Solomon, who was the the richest king in all of Israel's history. God will provide for you not only in necessities, but also will provide aspects of beauty and wonder and joy as well. And if we look at the world around us and we consider it, we will see that woven into the very fabric of creation. So we look and then we think and then the next thing that we do is that we speak. Jesus says that we ought to not be like the pagans. We ought to not be like the Gentiles who run around saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Do you, like I, have an inner dialogue that's always running Do you have that little voice that's always going in your head constantly? There is a narrator that is constant in here. This is not confessions of a crazy person here. We all do self-talk. And the question is, what is that dialogue like? If you're like, what about this, and what about this, and what about this, and what about this? How helpful is that dialogue? Not very helpful. And how different is that dialogue from helping to reshape that dialogue in your mind to say regularly, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not lack anything. That I don't have to worry about my life. There is an inner dialogue going on in your mind at all times and it is only a question of what are you speaking? What is going on as you say these things? And one of the ways that we help to combat worry is by changing the speech that was going on in our head. The ultimate form of this is prayer. Rick Warren says you can either worry about something or you can pray about something. You cannot do both at the same time because they take up the both mental and spiritual space. You can worry or you can pray. And so look, think, speak, and most of all, to seek. You and I are not victims. We are not passive. We are called to pursue and to seek after a couple of things. One, we're called to seek in priority God's priorities over ours. And we're called to do two things, to seek his kingdom and to seek his righteousness. Let me net this out for you in case you're lost at this point. If you are seeking your kingdom, your life will be filled with worry and anxiety. If you are seeking your own righteousness, your own sense of being okay, you will be filled with worry and anxiety. 
Worry and anxiety disappear if you prioritize his kingdom, what God is doing in the world, and you get to join with him, and the way that he lives that we get to mirror. And if you are seeking his righteousness, Jesus has made me righteous. I didn't make me righteous. And if I am seeking after the pleasure and the joy and the wonder and the peace of the good news of what he has done for me, imagine what that does to anxiety. That is a resource that only Christians have. When we seek his righteousness, it doesn't mean that we're earning the righteousness. It means we've been given the righteousness and we pursue it with all of our lives. Let me see if I can illustrate this. There's a pastor by the name of Bob Russell in Kentucky, and he had a friend who was a high school teacher who had this lifelong dream, and he hit his midlife crisis, but he had saved his money diligently. He always wanted to own a metallic blue Corvette. And he was so excited when he got the keys and he got to drive around in this car. Nothing that he had purchased, nothing that he had had in his life brought him greater joy than this automobile. But something else started to happen when he bought this car. He started to worry. The first thing that he worried about was that somebody would try to break into his car and steal it. So this was the 1990s, and he put one of those horrible car alarms in. Do you remember that era when car alarms were constantly going off in parking lots? That was his car alarm, was one of those car alarms, and it drove him and everyone else crazy. Second thing he worried about was he worried about that somebody was going to ding his car. And so he would park, if you know how the parking you know, lines can sometimes be straight, he would park caddy corner and take up two spots so that nobody would ding his car. He was that guy in the parking lot. The next thing he was worried about was what other people were telling him and what other people were thinking of him. Because people were walking by his car and seeing it and saying, boy, wish I was a high school teacher. But the key moment came when he was playing in a church softball league and it was one of those freak storms that blew in that also brought hail with it. Everybody else ran to shelter. This guy ran and put his body, true story, put his body on the hood of the car in order that his body might protect the hood of the car from denning it with the hail. And it was in that moment that he realized Maybe this isn't working out for me like I thought. You probably don't have a moment when you have thrown yourself on the front of your car in the middle of a hailstorm. But I'll bet you know you have a moment for yourself. This, this isn't working out like how I thought. And you're holding on to something so tightly you're worried about something so greatly that you need to let it go. The key word that Jesus gives at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, depending on what translation you use, is the word sufficient or enough. One of the greatest prayers that you and I need to be able to pray is, Lord, it's enough, it's sufficient. 
Same word in Greek where Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect even in my weakness. Is God sufficient for you? Is he enough? Do you trust him? Let's see how that works out in the life of one of our own in our congregation for Meg with some of her worries about seeking God's kingdom. Let's watch the screen. I never really thought it was something that I would do in Atlanta. Um, I really thought that it was something where I needed to be closer to my family in Kentucky or I needed to be have a house because I only have a one-bedroom condo and one bathroom and didn't ever feel like I had enough space, enough resources. Honestly, there was a lot of anxiety too about just being a single parent and having to do the whole parenting thing solo because um, I know that kids are a lot of work. He made me realize, he opened my eyes, that all of the things that I had been saying were excuses of not doing foster care in Atlanta were no longer valid. <laughs> it was almost like he just said, okay, so what other excuses do you have now? And I literally just started laughing out loud and was like, you're right, I have none. I, okay, let's do this and here we go. My specific age range was four to nine um, because I wanted younger kids, kids that were close to my sister's kiddos' ages. This voice in the back of my head that was like, so teenagers, and I was like, no. And eventually God just kind of changed my heart to be like, no, to be like, okay, okay, maybe, to like, okay, teenagers. This is not what I was expecting, but, um, but this is what he has planned. Honestly, the first few months were really rough for all of us. God really did provide through all of it. I had people show up and they would just fold laundry for me or they would bring a meal, they would walk my dog. Even just at Christmas, as recently as Christmas, he had somebody who volunteered to wrap all of our Christmas presents for me, which I greatly appreciate him because I was out of energy by the time we got to all of those things. And he's provided in ways that I never would have dreamed going into this. And there were a lot of days again, where I just felt like I didn't have enough. God just kept coming back and reminding me of the story where he feeds the 5,000 and that even the disciples who lived with him struggled and got to see all of these miracles firsthand, struggled with the same doubts and fears and worry and anxiety. Um, and yet God is faithful and he just keeps coming back to, I'm the God of abundance I will provide, just trust me. My understanding is that Meg's in the sanctuary right now. Can we celebrate Meg's courage in overcoming? In telling your story, Meg, we're reminded that God is enough, that he is the God of abundance, and that he provides for us even in those moments of weakness and in doubt and in worry. 
I love the way that in a leadership book that's meant a lot to me, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Steve Cuss puts it this way. The goal of managing anxiety is not simply for relief. It is to connect more fully with God and to raise awareness of what God is doing. My goal for preaching about anxiety is not to give you relief, although I assume that will come. I want you to let go of your worries and your anxieties so that you might be able to connect with God, to see what he's more clearly doing in your life, in his kingdom, in his world. And so I wonder if there's an action item that you need to do today. Is there something you need to let go of? Is there something you need to consider or look at? If you need to realize that all of your worries, there's not a lot of substance to them. We live in an age of permanent crisis. And anxiety is at an all-time high. But you don't have to live that way. The gospel gives you unique resources to face your anxieties and your cares and your worries. And so let us pray. Eternal and loving God, we come to you in this moment not hiding, pretending that we don't have our worries and cares and concerns. Instead, we cast them to you right now because you're the one who cares for us. And so, Father, as we bring to you these things, will you give us a new kind of freedom? Will you free us from the idea that we're in permanent crisis when we get to permanently be in your kingdom? Will you help us not to keep worry journals but prayer journals to seek your kingdom above all else. Take away the clouds of our worries and help us to be able to to see clearly and to know that, that most of our worries never come to pass anyway. And so forgive us for trying to control the uncontrollable of adding hours to our life and trying to manipulate tomorrow today. So help us to look and think and speak and seek differently, knowing that it is your righteousness that protects us, that we don't have to throw our life on the hood of the car because you have already thrown your life onto the cross. And so give us the antidote to our worries today, to seek your kingdom, to seek your righteousness, and to know that with you we have enough. We pray these things in Jesus' name.